This morning's reading is from the book of Esther, chapter 2. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what, he had done, what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendant proposed, Let a search be made for a beautiful young virgin for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day... He walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to, found out, to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into the King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for women, six months of, with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to be taken with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, Abigail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to, more than to any of the other women, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he, had, he set a royal crown on her head and made her king, queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, an Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberty. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bithana and Tereth, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, 
the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Thank you very much, Linda. Um, we are continuing in our series in the book of Esther. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that we were introduced to the kingdom of Persia. That's the setting that the story unfolds in. And you'll remember last week we had no mention of God, no mention even of God's people. Well, this week, as we jump into chapter 2, uh, this is where we find God's people. Uh, we find God's people here in Persia. And what is their situation well, they are exiles. They are a long way from home. And of course, as exiles, they faced all sorts of challenges. How were they to live as God's people in this kind of context? Uh, how were they to live without taking on the ideals and the values of the world around them? Or to use this language, how were they to do life in the world without also being of the world? Now, these challenges sound familiar, of course, because the Bible actually describes us as exiles. Uh, you'll see in the New Testament descriptions of Christian believers as aliens and strangers, foreigners and exiles in the world. And so, in fact, the challenges that we find here are, in fact, challenges that we are familiar with. See, chances are, I assume, that not many people here this morning have been exiled to Hong Kong. Now, I know that in a room like this, a lot of people here are from elsewhere. And even if you have been transferred here by your company, I'm going to guess that your contract doesn't say exiled to Hong Kong for three years. Uh, and yet, of course, we find ourselves in a place that isn't our home, but not just because we're in Hong Kong. No, because as Christian believers, this world is not our home. Uh, this is not where we belong. Uh, we find ourselves as exiles. And so we face similar challenges. And what we find in our passage this morning, well, it, it speaks to those challenges. It puts words to those challenges that we experience. Uh, but it also does more than that. And not only does it shine a light on the challenges for exiles, no, it also shows us encouragement for exiles. See, there are, this chapter is a real word of encouragement. Uh, not that it removes the challenge, but it doesn't sort of give a shortcut out of it. Uh, it doesn't even necessarily lay out exactly what to do in the face of challenges. Uh, you'll remember, the book of Esther, it isn't a textbook uh, filled with detailed examples of exactly what to do. No, it, it does more than that. It does something much bigger than that. It shows us how God is at work in the world. And you'll remember from last week, we saw how God is at work despite appearances. That even when earthly power seems supreme, even when God seems to be absent, God is at work. Well, what we find this morning, it takes that one step further. Because what we find in our passage today is that God is at work even through exiles. Even through those who are a long way from home. That's the encouragement we will find here. And so what we're going to do is look at the challenge and then we'll look at the encouragement. But let's start with this challenge, because as we jump back into this world that we're inhabiting over these weeks, and we find a world that is obsessed with appearances. Verse 1, Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. 
You see, where we finished last week, the king had blown up. He demanded that Queen Vashti be brought out to him. And when she refused, he burned with anger. He was volatile. Well, as we rejoin the action, he's calmed down a little bit. His fury has subsided. It's almost like he regrets what happened, maybe filled with a bit of nostalgia. And so now he's off on another whim. And his personal attendants, they come and bring an idea to him. Uh, let's find a new queen for the king. And let's do that by gathering all these young women to the king's palace. And as you see the plan detailed, you see that appearances are everything. Verse 3, Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. You can see that appearances are everything here. Nowhere in this plan do we have any criteria of character, of substance. And not even background is considered here. I see these Persian kings, they would tend to choose uh, queens from the noble families, sort of political reasons. But not even that is here. No, the, the criteria is simple. Young and beautiful. In fact, you see that in verse 4, literally in the original, it says, uh, the young woman who is good in the eyes of the king will be queen instead of Vashti. Uh, this advice was good in the eyes of the king, and he followed it. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with this verse from 1 Samuel. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, friends, as we rejoin King Xerxes in his world, this is what King Xerxes is like. It is a, a world obsessed with appearances. And, of course, the troubling thing here is that it isn't just an idea that gets brought to him. This isn't even just a premise for a really bad reality TV show. No, the troubling thing here is that this is reality. These are real people who are going to be involved in this, taken from real communities, taken from real families. Her real lives are going to be affected, turned upside down by this. I mean, imagine the king's commission arriving in the province. You know what he's here to do. He's here to bring people back to the palace. And who is he looking for? Young, beautiful women. It's a world obsessed with appearances. And this is the world where God's people find themselves. Verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. And so in this context, we meet Mordecai, one of God's people. Now we get something of his background here, something of his ancestry even. Now next week, we'll actually come back to this and look at the details of the names here, why that's significant. But for now, we can see who he is. He's one of God's people. But he finds himself here in the kingdom of Persia. He is an exile. Verse 6, there's that repetition that he was carried away from Jerusalem. Uh, his family, rather, was carried away from Jerusalem among those taken captive with Jehoiachin. In the Hebrew, the root for the word exile gets repeated four times in this one verse. That's who he is. Mordecai is an exile. Now, by way of context, you'll see here that his family, they were brought out from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, you'll remember it was the Babylonian empire that took God's people out of exile. 
uh, God's people had turned away from God. And so just as God had, as God had warned, uh, an enemy came and took them away. The Babylonians took them out into exile. Well, by this point in history, a different power rose up, the Persian Empire. And under the Persians, uh, people were actually allowed to go back. And so you'll read elsewhere in the Bible, uh, some of God's people went back to Jerusalem. But many stayed where they were. And that's where we find Mordecai. Now, some will, will make a lot about whether or not they should have gone back. Maybe they were sinning by staying here. We, we don't really find out why. We don't know why they're here. We don't know if it's his choice. We don't know if it's a product of other people's choices. But as we're presented with Mordecai, what we find is that he is stuck in Susa. Are you asking, where are you from? Well, he's from the land of Judah. That's home for him. But where does he live? Well, he lives in Susa. He was a long way from home. Mordecai is an exile. That's where God's people find themselves. And along with Mordecai, we meet Esther. Verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. And so now we meet Esther, another one of God's people who finds herself in this world. Uh, Esther, we find out, is an orphan. Her mother and father died, and so she's taken in by Mordecai. And we're told two things about her. Uh, the first thing is her name, or rather her two names, you'll have noticed. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah. Her Persian name is Esther. A little hint here. Here is a woman who is caught between two worlds. And the question in the back of our minds is, well, well which world does she really belong to? She's one of God's people, stuck here in exile. Which world does she truly belong to? See, that's the first thing we find out about her, her name, Hadassah, Esther. And the second thing we find out about her is her appearance. She was, verse 7, a she had a lovely figure, was beautiful. And of course, as a beautiful woman, caught in a world obsessed with appearances, she gets caught up by the king's plan. Verse 8, when the king's order and edict was proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa, put under the care of Haggai. And no surprise, Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai. In fact, when she gets brought in, she uh, is noticed right away. Verse 9, she pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with a beauty treatment, special food. He assigns special servants to her, promotes her to the best place in the harem. This is where God's people find themselves, stuck in this world, obsessed with appearances. And as they do life in this world, this world poses real challenges for these exiles. Now, just look at verse 10. There seems to be this pressure to conform Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And we don't see why he instructs her like this. We don't get the explanation or the motivation. But there just seems to be this push to stay quiet. 
uh, to blend in. There's this sense that they didn't belong. They didn't belong in this world, and so they had to keep their heads down. Uh, you can see Mordecai's attention to wanting to find out how she's doing. Every day he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. There was this pressure to conform, this pressure to blend in. And even more than that, we see that this, there's this pressure to perform. Verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh, six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. When you read this, you start to feel uncomfortable, don't you? Because what you realize is that this isn't just a beauty contest. This is a sex contest. It makes for uncomfortable reading. This passage is filled with suggestion without any of the details. And yet the details we are given show us what's going on. They're given these beauty treatments, 12 months worth, put through the paces simply to prepare them for the king. See, the king was going to bring all these young women to the palace and he's going to choose one of them. He's going to try each of them. And they're given whatever they wanted from the king's palace. They can take whatever they want in order to get noticed by the king. You can see what kind of world this is. See, everything rested on this one night with the king. Verse 14 in the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem, to the care of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned by name. See, if all these women gathered into the palace, all these women put through this process, one of them would end up queen of Persia. But what would happen to everyone else? Well, this is how one writer puts it. The sad part was that for the majority, what awaited them was more like widowhood than marriage. Uh, the king was collecting all these women for himself. And see, after this process, they wouldn't get to go back home and just sort of get on with life as if nothing had happened. No, they'd be stuck in the king's harem as a concubine of the king. It's as if the king was collecting all these dolls for himself, ready to be played with if he wants to, but otherwise stuck in this palace that felt more like a prison. You see, people in this world, they were treated as objects. And not even just the women in this scenario. The commentators will point to all the eunuchs here in the king's service. And how in the kingdom of Persia, hundreds of boys would be castrated each year and brought into the king's service. All at the king's pleasure. People were used and consumed. Uh, lives were ruined. And this is what we see play out in a world where appearances are everything. A world that is obsessed with appearances. 
when people are reduced to what they have rather than who they are. Where people are ranked on how they look rather than what they're actually like. And in this kind of world, if you are not beautiful enough to get noticed, you get dropped. If you don't perform well enough, then you get left behind. If you don't conform to the ways of this world, you are a nobody. This is the world that God's people found themselves in. This is the challenge that they faced as exiles. How do you live as God's people in a world like this? How do you do life in this world without being of this world? This is the world that God's people found themselves in. This is the way the world was here. And of course, the troubling thing is it sounds so foreign, and yet it sounds so familiar. Because not only was this the way the world was, we can't help but recognize that this is the way the world is. You see, in its more acute forms, uh, we will all know all too well stories of people being treated as objects, people being passed around as objects, people being used and abused across the world. This is our world today. But not even in just the more acute forms of this, we see that the broader way of the world, the challenge that exiles face living in a world that is obsessed with appearances, where the thing that really matters is what you have rather than who you are, where you're sized up by how you look rather than what you're really like. See, we know how so many will choose whether or not to associate you with you based on your dress size or your test scores at school. Uh, we can feel so all too often reduced to our sales numbers at work or our ability to network well. And of course, in this kind of context, there's such a pressure to perform, a pressure to keep up, a pressure to make ourselves beautiful enough to get noticed in this world, as if we go through all these beauty treatments. And of course, in this context, there's a real pressure to conform um, maybe if we're just a bit more flexible with our sexual ethics, well, well, then we'll make it further in society. Maybe if we're just a bit fuzzy with our numbers, then we'll be able to hit those targets that we keep being set. Maybe if we just stay quiet about our faith, then we'll eventually land that post and that university. This is how one commentator describes it. Every Christian, like Esther, finds himself or herself in situations where one must choose between doing what is right and doing what is culturally acceptable. Between acting with integrity and compromising in order to seize an opportunity. Between living consistently out of one's identity in Christ and living for whatever is desirable according to the surrounding cultural climate. The pressure is there. This is the challenge for exiles. And it's not even the, just the case to get ahead in society. No, this is the case just to try to keep up in society, to not lose out, to survive. 
Because in a world like this, if you are not beautiful enough, if you are not desirable enough, then the world looks at you and says, you are not worth anything. Friends, I wonder where you feel the pinch of this in particular today. Because this is exhausting. The challenge is real. And so we ask the question, what encouragement is there in this passage? We were promised encouragement. Where is the encouragement? Well, the rest of the passage sets the stage for the rest of the story. And when we see that, that is where we can find encouragement for exiles. See, as we read through the rest of these verses, what we find is that Esther does really well in the end. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Her Esther followed all the advice. She managed to take all the boxes. She kept winning everyone's favor. And so then we arrive at her night, verse 16, it's as if it slows down the narrative. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence on the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And what will happen? Well, verse 17, now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. The comparison is there. She outperforms everyone else. And the king rewards her with the crown. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. It ends on a sort of high point in a way. The king gave a great banquet, verse 18, Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces, distributed gifts with royal liberality. Uh, Esther ends up doing really well. What about Mordecai? We'll come back to Esther in a second. What about Mordecai? Well, Mordecai doesn't seem to do as well. Uh, verse 19 onwards gives a little glimpse of what happens to Mordecai at all, uh, during all of this time. Verse 19, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. See, Mordecai keeps going, tries to live this quiet life, tries to keep his head down. And you find him here at the king's gate. See, while Esther is taken off into the king's palace, uh, Mordecai is at the king's gate. This would be a big building uh, where business and administration would happen. Uh, he's sort of a, a civil servant. And as he gets on with his life, he stumbles across this plot. Verse 21. Uh, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, they became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. See, Mordecai somehow, we don't know why or how, but he stumbles across this assassination plot. And he tells Queen Esther, and then she reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. Uh, this is not uncommon in that time. In fact, King Xerxes will end up dying by being assassinated. And so Mordecai saves the king's life. Uh, what greater act in the kingdom of Persia could that be? And yet what does Mordecai receive? Well, he receives absolutely nothing. Uh, the, two, uh, the two officers, they're found, they're investigated, they're impaled. All of this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. 
And that's it. Uh, they know Mordecai saved the king's life, but nothing happens. In fact, in this context, Persian kings would usually make sure they showed honor to those that they received help like this. It's a way of currying favor, but nothing happens here. Uh, we're left hanging almost. And yet, the stage is set. Uh, queen Esther is rewarded by being queen. Uh, Mordecai is left unrewarded, and we're kind of waiting to see what happens. And yet, both of these events end up integral to the story of Esther. Uh, both of these details end up integral in God's plan to rescue his people as the story unfolds. Uh, it's what we saw last week. God is at work even here, even in the midst of these challenges. But the encouragement goes deeper. See, there's a real encouragement in seeing that God is at work even through these events. But the encouragement goes deeper. and That's really what I want us to focus in on today. Because it's not just that God is at work through these events in general. No, God is at work through these exiles in particular. God is at work through Esther. Even though you might not expect it. See, for those of us who know the story, we know that God uses Esther to rescue his people. So, so we're expecting it. We've read the story before. But at this point in time, if you were to look at Esther's situation, I'm not so sure we'd expect God to be using her, choosing her as the one through whom he would rescue his people. See, as you look at Esther at this point in the story, I wonder what you make of her. I wonder what you make of how she's got to where she is. See, she ends up in this top position. But how are we to think of how she got there? And we celebrate and anticipate. Here is one of God's people, Queen of Persia. And yet we're stuck because, well, would we recommend her pattern as an example to follow? Now, this is how one commentator puts it. How would you use this episode from Esther's life to teach virtue to your teenage daughter as she stands on the threshold of womanhood? Uh, what message would she get? Uh, make yourself as attractive as possible to powerful men. Use your body to advance God's kingdom. The ends justifies the means. Uh, see, we're kind of, we struggle to know what to make of Esther here. So on the face of it, we, we see that here is someone who has had sex with someone who is not her husband, as she ends up marrying a Gentile, someone who isn't part of God's people. Uh, we look at the example of Esther, and we can't help but think of the contrast with the example of Daniel and his friends, or Joseph back in the book of jo uh, Genesis. In fact, we read through it, it seems like Esther has gone with everything. As she goes with it, she ticks all the boxes, she wins the favor of those around her. In a sense, we struggle to hold her up as an example of someone who's in the world but not of the world, as she blends in, as she complies with everything. And yet, and yet, we can't help but think, what choice does she have? She was stuck in this kingdom of Persia. We saw what happened to Queen Vashti last week when she resisted the king's will. That you... 
look through and you see how she keeps quiet about her identity. But it's Mordecai who commands her not to do that. In fact, if you look back at verse 8, the verbs here are all passive as they relate to Esther. As if to say she is being swept up, pushed along by the force of circumstance. So when we look at Esther, we find someone who is caught up in this world that is obsessed with appearances. She's stuck in this world at the mercy of forces beyond her control, swept along by circumstances that she can't control. See, when we look at Esther, we can't help but remember that here is someone who is both a sinner and a sufferer. She is both a sinner and a sufferer. And we make a mistake when we reduce it to one or the other. See, if we only see her as a sufferer, then we only see her as a victim of her circumstances. Uh, we end up excusing her actions, her choices. And we end up taking away the dignity of her own choice and volition. And yet at the same time, if we only see her as sinner, well, we end up forgetting ignoring, overlooking the fact that here is someone who is at the mercy of forces she can't control. And when you put those two things together, she is both a sinner and a sufferer. Uh, what we find is someone who, at first sight, you would not expect to be the one that God has chosen to work through to rescue His people. Here is someone who has been swept up by the ways of the world. Someone who is also so steeped in the ways of the world. Someone who at this stage is barely recognizable as one of God's people. And yet, this is precisely who God chooses to work through. This is precisely the one God works through to rescue his people later in the story. See, friends, the story of Esther isn't just a story of God's providence at work in the world. Friends, the book of Esther is a story of God's grace at work in the world. He doesn't give up on Esther. He doesn't give up on her in her situation. He sticks with her. He works through her. He works in her. And even in these messy, messy circumstances, God transforms her into someone who is truly beautiful. God is at work, even through exiles. Remember, the book of Esther isn't just this textbook with all these examples that were to follow, like an instruction manual. No, it is a book that shows us God at work in the world. And what we find is that God is at work through people like Esther. And let me tell you this, that is good news. That is good news for us. Because when we look at Esther, we see ourselves. We find ourselves stuck in this world that is obsessed with appearances. We find ourselves at the mercy of forces we can't control. We feel like there's no choice but to live in this world. We have no choice but to live in this world. And yet, none of us here can put our hands up and claim that we have never compromised. 
that we have never just blended in and gone with it. And none of us would hold ourselves up as the example of someone who is in the world, but not of the world. But if God is at work through exiles like Esther, then we can find encouragement that God is at work through exiles like us. Friends, this is the grace of the gospel. Jesus Christ didn't love us because we were so beautiful. Everyone here was trying to make themselves beautiful enough to get noticed by King Xerxes. Jesus Christ did not love us because we were so beautiful that we caught his notice. No, Jesus Christ gave himself up for us to make us beautiful. He left the royal palace and joined us in exile. And as he walked that path, he walked it perfectly, never compromised. And yet when he died on the cross, he died in our place. He took our sin upon himself. He took all the ugliness that we find in our hearts on himself so that we could be clothed in Christ's righteousness. So that if we have put our faith and trust in him, then we can receive the beauty of Christ as ours. This is the grace of the gospel. And this means that even if the world around you looks at you and says, you are not beautiful enough for this world, even if you look within your own heart and you see all sorts of ugliness within, you can know that if your life is bound up with Jesus Christ, then you are beautiful in the eyes of the only one that matters. Friends, that is where your value is fixed. That is where your worth is found. That is what is on offer to all who come to Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are a Christian believer here today, my prayer is that this would encourage you as you go out and live your life as an exile in this world. God really is at work in the world. And He is at work even through exiles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we open up your word, we don't just see these uh, irrelevant stories that have nothing to do with our lives. And we thank you that we don't even just see these big abstract stories of you at work kind of out there. No, we see stories of how you are at work by your grace in people like us. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would encourage us today as we continue to live life a long way from home. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.